You're listening to a sermon from Hebron Baptist Church, a church in the northern Kentucky Cincinnati area that's committed to making disciples who make disciples. We want our love for God to be evident in our lives and for the Word of God to bear fruit as we go on mission across the street and around the globe. We hope after hearing this message, you'll connect with us on our website at hebronbaptist.org and visit our campus, not far from I-275 in Hebron, some Sunday morning. Our worship services are at 9.30 or 11. And now, here's a message from God's perfect, life-changing Word. invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And we're, we're going to be beginning a series this morning, a short series leading up to Easter. We're going to be spending the next few weeks in the Gospel of Mark towards the end in Mark's passion narratives. And this morning we're going to begin this looking at the Last Supper that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. So Mark 14, I'm going to read verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you grateful for the invitation to come to the table with you. Lord, we ask, I ask this morning that you'll be with me and with us, I pray that you would show me and us the great need that we have in our lives and our hearts for you, and that you would show us how wonderfully you've satisfied that need through your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I like birthday parties. Does anyone else like birthday parties? Birthday parties are fun. Um, Growing up, I had a lot of different themed birthday parties. I mean, that is what makes a birthday party fun, the different themes. I had a Bernstein Bear birthday party, a dinosaur birthday party, an Aladdin birthday party when the movie came out. That was a big deal. Um, And most people learn when you're around junior high age, you kind of stop doing a themed birthday party thing. I never learned that. It just kind of kept going for me. When I was in high school, I had a SpongeBob birthday party. In college, I had a a great group of college friends. We had some Disney birthday parties. Everyone would come dressed up like a Disney character. I was dressed up like Peter Pan one year. It was great. And when I got married, first few years, I kind of was like too cool for the themed birthday party thing. I was just like, you know, we can have some pizza, but it's not not really about me. Not, Not a big deal. But then one year, I thought, why am I doing this? My birthday is the one day of the year I can do whatever I want to do. So one year, a few years after I was married, I sent a text message out to my family, and I said, here's my birthday plan. Here's the agenda all day long. You can come to whatever you want to come to. And so we went to the Creation Museum. We drove past Kings Island. We had pizza. It was awesome. Birthday parties are fun, but they're also significant because they help us remember the life of somebody that God has put on this earth. It's easy to forget things in this life, so we help ourselves by creating reminders so we don't forget the most important things that we don't want to forget. And in Old Testament Israel, there was an annual festival, kind of like an annual birthday party for the nation of Israel called the Passover. It was a chance every year for the Israelites to remember where they came from. You might remember in the Old Testament book of Exodus, that's where, that's where we read of the original Passover. The Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. 
So God rose up a leader, Moses, who would, who would deliver them. Through Moses, God sent a series of plagues to the Egyptians against their gods. It culminated in the death of the firstborn. And so God gave instructions to the Israelites on that night, on the death of the firstborn, the Israelites were to take an unblemished lamb, to sacrifice the lamb, to take the blood of the lamb and put it on their doorposts and lentils. Then that night they would go into the house, they would roast the lamb, consume the lamb. And when God's spirit of judgment came that night through the land, he would take the lives of the firstborns unless there was blood on the doorway of the house. And in that case, he would pass over those households. Well, that event led to the people being let go. The Israelites were freed from slavery. The Lord used Moses to lead them through the Red Sea, and eventually their ancestors were freed in the Promised Land. And this became an annual holiday every year. The intention, at least, was that the Israelites would celebrate the Passover. They would remember where they came from. 1,400 years later, after the original Passover, in the land to which the Israelites were delivered, a new figure arises on the scene. He's doing crazy stuff. He's the center focus of Mark's gospel. His name is Jesus. He's doing things never, never seen before. He's preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's doing miracles. He's healing people. He has the power to cast out demons out of people. He controls even nature. He can calm a storm. Who is this guy? That's the big question. And the gospel of Mark turns when that question gets answered. Peter, one of Jesus' close disciples, gets it right. Peter sees that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, from the Old Testament, this expected figure, Jesus, he's here. So when Peter gets it, Jesus then explains what kind of Messiah he's going to be. He explains to his disciples that he's going to suffer and he's going to die. And he's going to rise three days later. His disciples can't understand this. Jesus explains it multiple times, but they don't get it. Well, the Gospel of Mark leads to the last days of Jesus' life in Jerusalem, in which this annual Passover meal happens to fall. Jesus is going to celebrate this with his, with his disciples, and it's here that Jesus is going to try to help his disciples understand the significance of what he's going to do. Jesus will take this established category that the disciples have. Presumably, they've celebrated this Passover meal every Every day of their lives or every year of their lives, but now Jesus is going to fill it with meaning. He's going to fulfill what it always looked forward to and help them understand the significance of this meal. So that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We're going to be digging through this text, looking at this supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. We're going to begin in Mark 14, verse 12, work our way through, and after we've walked through the text, we're going to take a step back and just ask, how does this apply to our lives today? So let's begin by walking through this text. We'll start in verse 12. And Mark, as he looks at this Passover meal with Jesus and his disciples, he focuses on three different aspects. And the first is the preparation of this Passover. The preparation. Verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So his disciples, they know the drill. They've done it before. They know that the, the Passover is coming. Someone needs to prepare this meal. So he sent two of his disciples. The Gospel of Luke tells us that these two disciples were John and Peter. So John and Peter, they're, they're, they're told, go into the city, that's Jerusalem, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, in this time and culture, it would not have been hard to identify this man because typically women were the ones who carried water. So to see a man carrying water, that would be easy to find. 
Jesus says, follow him wherever he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples, John and Peter, went out, entered the city, Jerusalem, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, so what just happened here? Jesus explained exactly what these two disciples would see. They go, and it's just like Jesus said it would be. So, okay, here's two options. It may be that Jesus, he's done a miracle here. That's absolutely in character with what we know of him from Mark's gospel so far. Jesus prophesied that these events would take place, and because Jesus is God, it all happened just the way he said it. That might be the case. Another option might be that Jesus has made these arrangements in advance. There's a growing tension um, happening between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. As we've read through the Gospel of Mark, we would have noticed that there's already the beginning of a plot to kill Jesus from the Jewish leadership. And so it may be that Jesus needs to, ca- needs to keep a, a low cover. And so he's kind of doing this the secrecy way. He's saying, go find this guy. He'll tell you where to go. And Jesus will come in the evening. Whatever way it is, we can trust, as Jesus' disciples did, that when we follow Jesus' instructions, even surrounded by danger, we're exactly in the middle of God's will for our lives. So, preparation of the Passover, it's a unique preparation, but that's what it is. Mark then transitions to look at an unexpected event in the Passover, betrayal at the Passover. Betrayal at the Passover. Let's look at verses 17 to 21. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. So it's evening, the, the 12 are arriving in Jerusalem, they're going to celebrate this. I kind of think of Passover like we think of Christmas. Like Christmas is this holiday that we celebrate, it has this religious significance. We, we remember what God has done for us, but it has this family feel, there's like happiness, it's, it's all, all, all good stuff. And so these, these 12, maybe on their journey, they've been talking with each other about what God did in the days of their ancestors, how he delivered them, how great God is, how there's a hope that he will deliver once again. Well, that's all good until Jesus kind of drops the bomb on this meeting. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Jesus here, he kind of reminds me of if you're at a Christmas dinner with your family and then Uncle Bill's there. Everything was totally great until Uncle Bill kind of opened his mouth and dropped this, this just totally open thing. We were all kind of putting our, our faces on. We're all nice. We're getting along with family until he just rips right through the meal, and it's like this drama starts. And on the one hand, that can be an inconvenience, but on the other hand, maybe Uncle Bill is actually the only one who's being transparent here. He's being real. We're just trying to get through the holidays and smile. He's actually getting to the heart of what's going on, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not just trying to keep a happy face for the sake of a holiday. He says, one of you will betray me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, surely not I. So apparently it's, it's not apparent. We know it's going to be Judas, but the disciples, they're like, who's it going to be? I don't know who it is. Jesus, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. In this culture, eating a meal together was a significant thing. It, it identified friendship. And to have someone sharing a meal with you who's about to betray you is a big deal. It's a heinous thing. 
And as I think about Judas, I've kind of reading the Bible, being around Bible stuff, I kind of have this attitude in my heart like, Judas, he's the bad guy. I just know he's the bad guy. But who is Judas? Think about it. Judas, like the other disciples, was called by Jesus. Jesus called him specifically to be with Jesus, to preach, to have the authority to cast out demons. This guy, he was so close to Jesus. He left everything, just like the other disciples did. Judas was a friend of Jesus. Psalm 41.9 alludes to this moment of betrayal in this Last Supper. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my friend in whom I trusted, my friend, one who ate my bread has raised his heel against me. So even though Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, Nothing caught him off guard. I think Jesus was genuinely grieved that this wasn't just a mechanical, this event leads to this event, that what happened broke Jesus' heart. It had to happen, but I think Jesus was broken over this. But of course, Jesus isn't surprised. He says, verse 21, for the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Jesus, his favorite self-designation was the Son of Man. He's He's referring to this character from a vision in Daniel chapter 7 who is raised up, seated next to God, God's right hand. Jesus knows that even though he's going to have to go through this betrayal and the death that will lead, that this betrayal will lead to, God will vindicate him. God will bring his good purposes through these horrible events. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And we know that Sadly, Judas later regrets this decision, but does not repent. So, so far, this is not your typical annual Passover meal. It's had an interesting preparation, um, a betrayal in the midst of the meal. And now, finally, Mark looks at something else that's not typical, but way better than a betrayal, a very glorious turn of events. Jesus introduces a new covenant in the Passover. New covenant in the Passover. Verse 22. As they were eating, he, Jesus, took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. What's Jesus doing here? There's supposed to be certain events that take place at a Passover. Jesus is changing this. He takes the bread and now he's changing the meaning, it seems, of the Passover to be about him. He's saying, this is me. This broken body, this holiday that you have celebrated for 1,400 years, that there's these rituals that have grown up about this, it's, it's so immersed in our culture. Really, it's about me. Jesus is the one who fulfills this holiday. The Passover lamb was an unblemished lamb. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. The Passover lamb in the days of Egypt and Exodus freed the people from God's judgment and from their being in slavery to Egypt. Jesus, the greater Passover lamb, he has the power to redeem and free us from the cosmic sin and brokenness that fills every corner of our universe, that, 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 that affects us. It's, it's why we die. It's why we sin against each other. It brings brokenness in every area of our lives. And now God has brought the ultimate solution to fruition through Jesus. The Passover was always about him. And now he's come. He's saying this meal is about me. He continues, it's not just the bread, verse 23, then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this 
is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What is this covenant? What, what is Jesus talking about here? The Gospel of Luke helps us understand that this is the new covenant. What's the new covenant? Okay, so back in the book of Exodus, after, after the Passover, the first pa- Passover happened, God's people were delivered out of slavery and led to Mount Sinai, where they entered into a covenant with God. This, this idea fills up so much of the Old Testament. God gave these instructions and laws. They were good. And at their essence, they were about loving God and loving people. But the problem was, it wasn't the covenant, it wasn't the laws, those were good. They reflected God's good character. The problem, though, is that the people didn't keep the old covenant. And as you follow the storyline of the Old Testament, it resulted ultimately in God's people being exiled into foreign lands. But there was this hope, this hope that the prophets of the Old Testament had. They looked forward to a day when a new covenant will be established. Not like that old one, a new one. And now Jesus, he is activating that hope. So let's look at one Old Testament prophet who looked forward to this day, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah, he lived hundreds of years before Jesus. He was looking for this new covenant. He said, look, the days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So it's not like that one after the original Passover. This one's going to be different. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. So they broke that one. We need a new one, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. So unlike that old covenant, when the Lord's commands, his ways are written on tablets of stone, in this new covenant, God's going to write it on hearts of people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will each teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. We're going to know God. Everyone's going to know God in this new covenant. And so Jesus, he starts to activate these hopes. And we, we, we know from the rest of the New Testament that Jesus, he establishes this new covenant He can keep the covenant. He can keep the deal that we never could have. And now everyone who is in him, we're filled with his spirit. His commands are written on our hearts. He changes our hearts to want to be like him, to keep the covenant. Jeremiah ends his quote with, For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Forgiveness of sin. So these are these Old Testament hopes. And now Jesus comes along and he speaks of this new covenant made in his blood. The long-awaited new covenant has come. Verse 25 in Mark, Jesus says, truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows he's about to be led to his death, but that's not the end because what he's starting here, this new covenant that's being inaugurated here is going to have a consummation. And a kingdom that will come. And we live in this time in history where the the kingdom is spreading, the gospel is going forth, and we look forward to the day when Jesus' kingdom will come in fullness. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. An unexpected Passover meal. A strange preparation, a betrayal in the midst of this otherwise happy event, and then a long-awaited covenant established here. Great. 
So what does that have to do with you and me today? That's our question right now. What does this have to do with us 2,000 years later? In this meal, Jesus, when he was giving the bread, he said, take it. This is my body. In a few minutes, we're going to have an opportunity, an invitation to take the Lord's Supper, to remember what Jesus established here 2,000 years ago. And the invitation is to us to take it. How are we to take Jesus? What does that mean when we take the Lord's Supper? Well, here's at least two things, two applications. This is what it means. Number one, to take Jesus, we must receive his death. To take Jesus, we must receive his death. In Mark's account here of the Lord's Supper, we see a man, Jesus, who had enemies, tensions on the outside. The Jewish leadership wanted him to die. He had a betrayer on the inside, Judas. Hours later, he would be put to death. If we are to take Jesus, if we are to be followers of him, it means that we will encounter suffering. For different people, it might look different. For some of you, it might mean physical danger as you preach the gospel on a foreign mission field. For some, it may look like losing friends, losing the love of family members because we claim Jesus as our Savior. For all of us, it means dying to ourselves, dying to our pride, dying to find significance in anything except for Jesus. For you, what does it look like? Maybe it means dying to the fear of man. Maybe you've held what man thinks of you so high and it's kept you from sharing your faith with others. You're afraid of what others might think of you. Or maybe it's kept you from sharing and confessing a sin with an accountability partner. Whatever it means, we have to die to ourselves, die to boasting in anything except Jesus. I can't get over how close Judas was. He was so close to Jesus. Anyone on the outside looking in would have said, well, he's one of the followers. I want to be like Judas. I wish I could be that close to Jesus. Listen to Judas preach. Look what he can do. It's so easy for us to walk into this church building week by week. We look like we're walking the walk and talking the talk. We're, we're in the right people groups. We can use the right language. But Judas, he's, he stayed back. He, he didn't identify it with the death of Jesus. He wouldn't give himself all the way. And so he's a reminder to us today. It's not too late for us. If you haven't given yourself to Jesus, even your own life, identifying with his death, I encourage you to do that. But here's the comfort that we have. As followers of Jesus, when we suffer, when we're persecuted, when we encounter any kind of brokenness in this life, physical, health issues, relationship issues, we have a Savior who knows exactly what it's like. He hasn't just seen us from afar. He's been on this earth. He's walked on the soil. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, and we can trust in him. There was a man who lived in the second century. His name was Ignatius of Antioch, and he was a martyr for Jesus. He died because he loved Jesus, and as he anticipated his death, he wrote these words. He said, To what end have I given myself up to perish by fire or sword or savage beasts? Simply because when I'm close to the sword, I'm close to God. And when I'm surrounded by the lions, I'm surrounded by God. But it is only in the name of Jesus Christ and for the sake of sharing his sufferings that I could face all this. For he, the perfect man, gives me strength to do so. So when we embrace Jesus' death and it's hard, we have a Savior who can strengthen us to endure. So one, to take Jesus, we must receive his death. And two, finally, to take Jesus, we must receive his life. We get to receive his life. In offering 
this bread and this cup, Jesus is implying and showing that we have a need that we can't fulfill on our own. We need a life that we can't provide for ourselves. We need forgiveness. And so to come up here and to take the, the, the cup and the bread, we're saying, I don't have it all together. I'm broken, and I need the life that only Jesus can provide. I need his righteousness, and I can't find my, my boasting in myself and, and my pride and all the things I've done at work and what a great mom or dad I am and how popular I am and how great my test score are. Whatever we're tempted to put our, our identity and significance in, those things in and of themselves may not be bad things, but if they're the source of where we find significance, then we missed it. We're called to find all of our life, all of our boasting in Jesus alone. And what a life he offers. Jesus, in giving his life, what's represented in this supper, he's given us forgiveness of sins, a friendship with God. He's in, he will empower us with his Holy Spirit. He will give us a family of believers. What Jesus gives here is the greatest life and freedom that we could ever experience anywhere. So Jesus, to take him, we must receive his death, and we must receive his life. I started today telling you about birthday parties. I've enjoyed birthday parties. Well, three years ago, my birthday changed forever. It'll never be the same again. I got a total upgrade for my birthday. My birthday's on March 8th. Three years ago, on March 4th, we had the birth of our baby girl, Hadley. And uh, she's so awesome. So this past March, last month, we had a combined birthday party. Our birthdays are just four days different, so we just combined them. And we had a, a mermaid and merman-themed birthday party this year. I mean, that's what she wanted, so that's what, what, what we did. And it's really about her. I mean, you know. And so my birthday will never be the same again. Until the day I die, on my birthday, I will always think about Hadley. And we'll just have this connection. Jesus came, and he took this established festival, Passover, and he upgraded it so much. It will never be the same again. He took a festival that, that recalled God redeeming people from physical slavery, and he came and he showed how he's establishing something that will, that will break through the cosmic slavery that we all experience in our brokenness and sin, and he gives us freedom in life that we can experience nowhere else. So this morning, let's come and let's take Jesus in his death and in his life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of your body, of your blood, of, of being faithful to God despite your enemies and betrayal of a friend. Oh, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that it offers us new life. Lord, I pray we would receive that and it would give us freedom to the depths of our souls. Please bless the meal that we share together now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Hebron Baptist Church. We pray as you have listened, the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart that you may faithfully follow Him. Most importantly, we hope that you've been drawn into a relationship with God. At Hebron, we believe that the gospel is the central message of the Bible. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, and died for our sins. But he was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. The most appropriate response to hearing this good news is turning from sin and turning to Christ. Don't stay far from God. Instead, repent and believe in Christ and be brought into an intimate relationship with him. If you would like more information about this life-changing decision, 
please contact us through our website at hebronbaptist.org or even better, come see us on a Sunday morning. May God bless you as you follow him. Mm-hmm.